step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. On this week's episode, we have four bone-chilling and spine-tingling stories that'll be perfect for you. I really hope that you enjoy them. So let's dive in as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Every monster has its price. I hunt them down. Written by Doomed Geek. I was on the trail of a monster, one with fangs and a taste for humans. This vampire had attacked a monster hunter that I knew. It had bitten him, changing him making him the monster. Only he had chosen oblivion over a future as a vampire. He had walked out into the sunlight and been burned away to dust. Night had fallen by the time that I began my pursuit. I was trying not to think about the fact that I had never hunted a vampire before. When I met the monster hunter, I was a security guard, a loser on minimum wage, who had gotten himself fired. That was then, I told myself. Now, the only thing that mattered was revenge. I would make the vampire pay for what it had done. First, I had to find the fiend. I paced the bleak rain-swept city into blind rage for hour after hour. I broke into derelict buildings and searched filthy alleyways and found nothing but dead ends. By dawn, I was no closer and I knew by then that the vampire would be hidden away. It would be in a coffin somewhere to escape the light. To have any chance of finding it, I needed to wise up. To think. I recalled how the vampire had killed the monster hunter in its own act of revenge, after he had taken out one of its kin in a seedy bar. I would go there. It was miles away and I was beat, so... I stuck on my arm to hail a taxi. Three cabs with their light on drove straight past me. I did not know why. I wasn't wearing anything out of the ordinary, apart from maybe the fedora the monster hunter had given me just before he had died. But then I realized the reason none of them wanted me as a passenger. I was holding a wooden stake. Its tip was sharp, ideal for ending a vampire and guaranteed to make cab drivers give me a wide berth. I put the stake under my coat, held it in place with one of my arms, while with the other I tried again to fly down a taxi. At last, one pulled over to the sidewalk, trying not to stab myself in the chin with the stake, and trying not to look weird while I was doing it. I got in. The cab driver did not want to take me all the way to the bar because of the reputation of the district that it was in. I did not blame him and ended up walking the last mile. Layers of graffiti covered the walls and cars were parked up on street corners with music blaring out. 
I stopped hiding the stake. Looking like a crazy was an insurance policy on these main streets. I made it to the bar without being hassled. There were no windows and the door was closed. The place was a seedy enclave, a refuge for loners and sometimes creatures of the night. I wondered if the vampire that I was seeking might be in there. It would be safe from the light of day. And I knew from my previous visit that the bar sold plasma as well as cheap beer. The customer is always right no matter how disturbing their needs. One of the few useful things that I had learned when I was a security guard was how to pick locks. And the lock on the bar's door was as shoddy as the rest of the place. In less than a minute, I was inside. The only signs of life were the flies buzzing around the flickering strip lamp in the ceiling. The place stank as well, of stale sweat and old cigarette smoke. It looked like somebody had made a passing attempt at cleaning up after the night before. Chairs were upended on tables and broken glass had been swept up into a pile in one corner. That was good for me. I could walk through the bar without stepping on any shards and broadcasting my presence. I headed for a back door which was propped open by a chair. As I came closer, I heard the sound of snoring. There was someone outside whose dreams were about to be rudely interrupted. I stepped over the chair and into a backyard that was littered with more broken glass and empty beer cans, mounds of cigarette butts and empty pizza boxes. A rat sat in one of the boxes, licking the base. It ignored me and I ignored it. I wanted to speak to the other vermin in the yard. The barman who I recognized from the last time that I was there was fast asleep in a deck chair. A cigarette hung out of his open mouth and drool dripped from his chin. I kicked his leg. He sat up with a grunt and looked at me with bloodshot eyes. You are going to tell me, I growled, where to find a particular vampire. Is real pale or real ugly? Favors black for his attire and he attacked an associate of mine. Oh yeah, he growled back. I know the bloodsucker you're talking about. He was in here bragging about what he had done. But there's no way I can betray him. My life would not be worth living. I put the tip of the wooden stake against his chest. Now, I said. I know that if I impale you with this, you won't crumble into dust because you're not one of the undead. But I imagine that it will hurt real bad and likely prove fatal. You don't need to worry about no vampires, mister. You need to worry about me. He gulped, his Adam's apple moving inside his scrawny neck. Okay, he said. The dude with the fangs that you're looking for likes to sleep at the morticians on the corner. Two blocks along from here. It's a big old building with a horse parked in front. Can't miss it. Sounds like a real charming place, I said. Does the mortician know that he's got vampires on the premises? He sure does, the barman replied. He's got plenty of spare coffins and the vampires pay him to watch over them while they're asleep. Protect them from scum like you. He spat these last words out. Fresh anger flared inside me, but I held it in. He was human garbage, but my sole aim was to take out the vampire. The rest of the filth inhabiting the city could rot. Mighty grateful, 
I drawled and left him scowling. The mortician's was easy to locate. The buildings around it were run-down homes. Paint was peeling off of the walls. Windows were boarded up in some. Resting cars sat in the overgrown yards of others. The mortician's was constructed of stone and had a faded grandeur. The hardest part in front of it looked like it belonged to a different age. One where men wore top hats and a lady showing an ankle was considered risque. It sat in its own grounds and there was no way to sneak up on it. So I decided to walk straight up to the front door. I tried the handle. Locked. But it was also easy to pick so I went right on in. My heart was beating fast as I looked around. There were chairs lined up against a wall, a table with a bowl of wilting flowers in it and two doors leading off from what I took to be a reception area. I mentally tossed a coin and opened the door on the right. I led into a wide and low-ceilinged room. A candle flickered in one corner, illuminating half a dozen coffins resting on stands. I tried the lid of the nearest one. It slid away easily to reveal the coffin, empty. I took a breath and moved on to the rest. The next one was empty. I pushed away the lid of the third coffin and my skin began to tingle. There was a body lying in the coffin. It was dressed in all black and its skin was drained of color. Its mouth was closed but I knew that behind those pale lips there were fangs. My hands were shaking badly as I lifted the stake and placed its sharpened tip on the vampire's chest above where its undead heart would be. This hideous creature had destroyed the monster hunter, and now I would destroy it. But I could not do it. I could not push the stake into its heart. For all I wanted revenge, this felt like such a vicious thing to do. I closed my eyes, told myself that I had to strike. And then I heard a door creak and span around, to find myself face to face with an old man. The mortician it must have been. He was pointing a revolver at me and there was a cold smile on his liver-spotted face. You have my sincere condolences, he said. What for? I managed to ask. For your imminent death, he told me. My guts tightened. I had missed the chance to destroy the vampire and now I was about to get a bullet in the brain. The mortician's icy stare hardened as he added. If sir would like to step this way, I will prepare you for your grave. He pointed the barrel at a connecting door. I dropped the stake and raised my hands and headed that way. I found myself in a room dominated by a narrow table and shelves stacked with dusty bottles full of dark liquids. At the head of the table there was a silver tray with scalpels, plastic tubes and a surgical saw. The kind of equipment that a psychopath would need. The mortician laughed at the horrified expression on my face. I would assure you that you won't feel a thing, he said, but that would not be true. Now lie on the table so I can make a start. I stand on my feet. What are you going to do? There's no money in simply burying bodies anymore, he answered. So I have diversified. I have my vampire guests and I also have a thriving sideline in providing body parts to clinics 
eyes, kidneys, hearts, all the organs that they will buy for patients, willing to do anything to enhance their miserable, disease-riddled lives. I can make a few thousand dollars from you and afterwards the vampire can have your blood with the compliments of the house. Which is quite enough talking. Get in your back, it's cutting time. My options were bleak. Fight back and die or submit and be turned into spare parts. I was trying desperately to decide when the door burst open and a man strode in. He wore a pinstripe to suit and carried a cane. I am here for the vampire, he said. Can either of you gentlemen tell me where it is? In response, the mortician grabbed a scalpel and lunged at the dapper intruder, who neatly sidestepped the attack and chopped the mortician's neck with the side of his hand. The mortician crumpled to his knees and then fell forward flat into his ugly face. He was unconscious. The man in the pinstripe suit turned to me and said in his clipped, precise tones, Do we also have a problem? No, I told him. I'm here for the vampire as well. The man in the pinstriped suit frowned. In that case, we might have an issue after all. He took a sheet of paper out of his jacket pocket and showed it to me. There was a mugshot of the vampire on it with a dollar sign followed by four figures printed below. Once I had the chance to take this in, he continued, I am the operative who has been assigned to hunt this monster down and the fee is mine. I understand, I told him. I don't care about the money. All I want is revenge. A small smile flickered across his lips as he said, Well, that's very noble of you, but every monster has its price in cold hard cash, and that is my priority. So, what is it going to be? Do we fight for the right to impale? I thought back to how I had been unable to finish the vampire off, hating myself for it, but knowing that it was the right thing to do, I said, The vampire is through there and then I left him to it. The monster hunter's death had been avenged, albeit by the hand of another, and yet all I felt was emptiness. I had been a failure when this had started, and I was still a failure, alone and broke with no purpose in life anymore. As I had done before, I drifted, while the world happened around me. Everybody seemed to have somewhere to go to, somebody to speak to, everyone except for me. Eventually, I found myself back at the rundown building which the monster hunter had used as his base. I went inside, through the fedora, onto the floor and collapsed onto the battered sofa that sat in the center of the room. My eyes began to close, and I was so tired and on the verge of tears. The worrying sound of a fax machine made me sit up. The monster hunter had avoided modern technology because he did not trust it. He had pointed out that hackers were constantly on the virtual prowl, around emails and messaging apps, but that no one was looking out for faxes. They were old school and obsolete, unless you were a freelance operative being paid by the government to eliminate monsters. Despite my failure earlier, was this something that I could do? I wondered. And if people who sent the faxes had not realized the monster hunter was dead, could I take his place? 
With these questions weighing down on me, I dragged myself to my feet and went to see what was printed on the paper being dragged through the fax machine. Two sheets of A4 ended up in the tray. The first one had a mugshot of a man with short, tidy hair wearing glasses. He looked like the least threatening person that I had ever seen. And yet the fee for his elimination was into the five figures. I gripped the paper tighter when I read that. If I could do this one job successfully, I would have more money than I had ever had in my life. I moved on from the dollars and turned to the next page where a last known address and its monster classification was given. I knew the address. It was a cemetery on the edge of the city. And the man in the mugshot was a zombie. My hands were shaking as I folded up the papers and put them in my pocket. I picked the fedora up and the equipment that I would need from a cabinet, and then took a deep breath. All I had to do was eliminate a zombie. How hard could it be? I kept telling myself that all the way to the graveyard. When I arrived, it was clear straight off where the zombie had emerged from. One of the plots was surrounded by a flimsy perimeter of tape, similar to that the police used to crime scenes. The earth and the plot was broken open and just the headstone remained intact. A scrawny man dressed in overalls was standing nearby, leaning on a shovel. I wandered over and said, I'm working for the government, can you tell me what happened? He was chewing tobacco and worked it around his mouth before he replied, Yeah, about dang time, I've been telling everybody something bad would happen, but no one ever listened to me, they never do. Dang fools. Well, I'm here, I said patiently, and I'm prepared to listen. He turned and pointed into the distance. It's all because of that river. It broke its banks a few days ago after all the rain we've had and the land in the graveyard was flooded. The river water seeped right down into the earth, right down into the graves. Now most times this would be pesky but no big deal. But that's bad water in that river, you see. It's heavy with pollution discharged from the chemical plant about two miles upriver from here. And what did the polluted water do here? I asked, gesturing at the disturbed grave. A disgusting wad of tobacco landed on the ground close to my feet. He wiped the back of his hand across his mouth and continued chewing as he spoke. Why had done brought that young man back from the dead? I seen it with my own eyes, clawing its way out, no longer a human being but one of them zombies like they got in the games down at the arcade. It climbed right out and then staggered off. I had almost everything that I needed. Just one more thing, I said. Which way did the dead man go? He pointed in a new direction. That way, towards the highway, maybe looking to hitch a ride. I pity the poor fool that gives that bundle of decaying body parts a lift. I thanked him for his time and set off walking towards the highway. When I arrived, I saw that it was a long, bleak strip. There wasn't a truck in sight. Along the road, I could see a lone building. Lights flickering on its roof. It spelled out diner. I headed that way. From the outside, the diner looked filthy. Its windows were covered in grease and water dripped from a broken gutter, and somebody was pushing open the door. 
Not someone, I realized, with a jolt of adrenaline, but something. As the zombie shuffled inside, a little bell above the door rang. I followed. The diner's interior was foul. Its tables were covered in a red plastic that was cracking and peeling away. There were scraps of food on the floor and there were flies everywhere. They crawled over the tables and along the walls and flew around the head of the latest customer, drawn in by the decay. The object of their attention, the zombie was shuffling towards the counter. A man wearing an apron that had been white decades ago had his back to the counter and was flipping patties on a hot plate. The zombie slapped a hand down onto the counter. Hey, hold your horses there, fellow, the man in the apron said. He turned and asked, All right, what can I get you? The zombie's voice when it answered was low and distorted. Brains. The man in the apron shook his head as he replied, We don't serve no brains. I can do you a burger with onions, fries or a hot dog, but no brains. The zombie was not interested. Brains. Its voice rumbled like the prelude to a storm. Need brains. I decided to intervene. I took off the sawn-off that I had taken for the cabinet and tapped the zombie on the back with the barrel. How about you hurry it up a little, I said. Some of us haven't got all day. The zombie turned. I could still recognize the man in the glasses from the mugshot. The man that it had once been. Now its skin was gray and breaking open in places. I could see the flesh beneath and patches of the decay that was beginning to consume it. And I wondered how inbred ugly the regular customers at the diner must have been. I mean the man in the apron had embedded an eyelid when he first saw the zombie. Yet most people would have run screaming at the sight of its horrific face. A face that was leaning in towards me. Brains, it said, a glimmer of hope in its hideous tone. Not today, I replied and placed both barrels against its forehead. I knew that if the movies and TV series were right, I needed to destroy its own brain to end the thing. My finger moved to the trigger, but once again, I couldn't do it. This thing had once been a living and breathing person. The zombie's mouth opened, revealing gray teeth from which drool hung. Its fetid breath struck me, and I felt bile rising inside me and my limbs freezing as fear took over, and then it moved in closer. It was about to bite me and I could not move. Suddenly, there was a blur of movement behind the zombie. It was the man in the apron swinging a frying pan at the back of the zombie's head. He connected the zombie groaned and turned away from me to see what had hurt it. I had my second chance and I took it. In the aftermath of the impact, matter flew everywhere. It was parts of the zombie's skull and its brain, I realized, as I wiped some off of my face. And it was not just me. It was all over the walls and the man in the apron. Part of the zombie's brain had even ended up on the hot plate and were beginning to sizzle. I think I've lost my appetite. I sat and walked away. Back at base, there was a fax waiting for me. It had one word typed on it. Update. I wrote, Zombie eliminated, requesting payment. 
and I sent the fax back. A few minutes later, I had the details that I needed. I took a shower to clean off the zombie remains and found a change of almost clean clothes from the pile that the monster hunter had left in the floor. I also found an ankle-length leather coat hanging in the closet. Must have been a spare for the one that the monster hunter wore. I tried it on for size and it fitted me perfectly. I smiled, put the fedora back on, and I went to go get paid. I had been told that the cash had been left in a briefcase in a locker at the train station. As tired and stressed commuters filed past behind me, I glanced in the briefcase and saw the stacks of banknotes. My heart soaring, I closed the locker and, looking as casual as I could, I walked away. There was no way that I could deposit that amount of money in a bank, so I went back to my base and I hid it in various places. And then I waited. Although I was now cash rich, I was hooked on monster hunting and wanted another assignment. As the hours passed and nothing came through on the fax machine, my mind had wandered. I thought about the chemical plant that was supposedly discharging substances into the river that could reanimate the dead. Was that really the case? I had wondered. I looked back at the fax machine, still silent. So I got to my feet and put the fedora and coat on. It was time to get proactive and go see for myself what was really happening at the chemical plant. And maybe I would get lucky. Maybe there would be some monsters in the max. I walked through the night enjoying the sense of freedom that I felt now that I didn't have to worry about money. Soon, I was skirting the edge of the graveyard and following the course of the river. There was a rank smell rising from the water, but that was not that uncommon in rivers and built-up urban areas. I needed to get to the source, to the plant itself. It was a squat, sprawling concrete structure surrounded by a steel fence. Signs were placed on the fence warning of 24-hour surveillance and guard dogs. I knew from my own experiences as a security guard that this was a bluff. The reality was that somebody would make a half-hearted tour of the perimeter of the building once a night and then move on. I found a break in the fence and I slipped through. There was a door ahead of me. It had its own sign saying, Fire door, keep closed at all times. The door was propped open with a plastic barrel with the symbol for hazardous substances on its side. I stepped inside and found myself in a brightly lit open space. There were more of the barrels, some lying on their side. Dark liquid pooled on the floor in places and in the distance, I could hear voices. I moved towards this, an adrenaline junkie in search of their next hit. At the far end of the space, a couple of the people deep in conversation suddenly walked into view. I ducked down out of sight behind a stack of barrels and listened as the first one said, These test subjects better be viable. I am getting it in the neck for management for all the rejects that we've had to throw on the river. His companion merely grunted in reply. They had reached a door with a panel next to it. The companion punched in a series of numbers and the door slid silently open. After they had gone through the door, it remained open. I crept forwards, slipped through, and crouched low to hide behind a steel cabinet. The men that I had followed were oblivious to me. They were walking along a row of beds, 
and each bed was occupied. If this had been a hospital ward and the scene before me could have been a couple of doctors doing the rounds, only the patients in this building were strapped to their beds and they were writhing and groaning. I recognized that sound from my encounter in the diner and a cold chill ran down my spine. This wasn't a chemical plant. It was some kind of twisted zombie production line. The two men were making notes and shaking their heads. They didn't seem happy. Finally, with their inspection complete, the two men left the room. On the other side of the door, one of them tapped in a code and the door slid shut. I straightened up and I moved over to the beds and the things being held prisoner. There were five of them in all in various stages of decay. The sickly sweet smell of rotting flesh was heavy in the air, and as each of them noticed me, they struggled harder against their restraints. These were made of thick leather and slotted into metal holders. For a moment, I considered trying to free them, but I dismissed that idea. These were no longer men. They were monsters who would attack and bite me and devour my brain given the slightest chance. I decided the best thing to do was to get out of there and alert the government by fax. I turned to leave and as I did, an alarm began to howl and an intercom high in the wall of the room buzzed into life. Attention, you are not authorized to be on this site and will be dealt with accordingly. I swore. The voice over the intercom went on. You will now be a participant in our research program. I will not, I yelled back, but I got no reply. Instead, the intercom cut out and the straps holding the zombies down were automatically released. I was trapped. A human subject for a test to see what five zombies would do to one helpless victim. I watched in horror as the zombies sat up. They moved slowly, as if trying to remember how to work their bodies. Their hands twitched and reached out and they seemed to be struggling to focus. One zombie which had made it to its feet stumbled and fell into the one next to it. The zombie lashed out with its arm and within seconds both were snarling and trying to bite each other. The other zombies just sat there and watched blankly. It was clear this batch of zombies was a failure. Without warning the door slid open and a man wearing a lab coat had walked into the room. He wore an expensive looking suit underneath the coat. An entourage dressed in security uniforms followed, all carrying poles with plastic loops at the top. Careful to keep their distance, they snagged the zombies around the neck and dragged them out of the room. Such a waste, the man in the lab coat said as he watched them go. But we will try again, starting with you. No way, I shot back. You're not going to turn me into a zombie. Oh, it's not your choice. You forfeited all your rights the moment you trespassed on my property. You'll never get away with this. Oh, I will. I make generous donations to political campaigns and employ a large number of local people at my other businesses. Money makes the world go round, and money makes the authorities look the other way. You are mine to do with as I choose. He laughed and walked out of the door. One of his entourage on the other side started to tap in the code to close the door. I had one chance to act. The long leather coat had deep pockets. They were ideal for storing equipment that a monster hunter might need, such as a wooden stake which I took out and threw towards the door. 
It landed on the floor in the gap before the door had a chance to close, holding it open, but not by enough for me to squeeze through. I ran at the door, shoulder barged it, and I was out. The entourage and the man in the lab coat were already gone, apart from the man who had been left to enter the code and the door. He looked at me in shock and then reached for a taser hanging from his belt, but he didn't make it. My fist connected with his face. I heard and felt bone breaking. His, not mine. He did not cry out. His legs gave way and he collapsed onto the floor, out for the count. I jumped over him and ran back through the space and the propped open door. When I arrived back at my base, I was coated with sweat and adrenaline was still pumping through my veins. I was a man on a mission. I was going to alert the government to what was happening at the plant, and then this evil operation would be taken out of business. The man in the lab coat and his lackeys would go to prison for a very long time. Justice would prevail. I went inside to find somebody waiting for me. He was wearing a pinstriped suit and held a cane. It was the monster hunter who had saved me from the mortician and eliminated the vampire. What are you doing here? I asked. He took a piece of paper out of his pocket and showed it to me. There was a mugshot on it. Of me. I don't understand, I said, my voice shaking. I'm terribly sorry, old chap. I've been assigned to eliminate you. But I'm not a monster. Oh, the system says you are. And once you're in the system, there's only one way out. He lifted his cane and unscrewed a cap from the end, revealing a hideously sharp dagger. I'll make this quick, he said. No, I begged him. I've uncovered a facility that is making zombies. The man who runs it thinks that he's above the law because he's rich. He's behind this as well, he must be. The system is corrupt, and you're being used by it to kill an innocent man. He stared at me, and then slowly put the cap back over his dagger. I barely know you, he said, but I believe that you're an honest person, a good person, and I've had my suspicions for some time about those who pay me to eliminate monsters. So I'm going to lie and tell them that I eliminated you and take the fee, and then maybe find a new career, maybe back home in England. He gestured towards the door with his cane and continued, You should leave as well. They have eyes everywhere and there's a good chance they'll discover that I let you go. More monster hunters will come after you then, and they will not hesitate. I took a deep breath and walked out. It had started to rain and the city was cold and gray around me. A hostile, threatening place. I had been a monster hunter. Now, I was a fugitive. Who wants better sex? And who wants to start having better sex immediately? Adam and Eve is offering 50% off just about any item, plus free shipping which includes rush processing. And more than that, Adam and Eve want to make your life easy. They offer discreet shipping as your privacy is their number one concern. Whether you're trying to spice it up in the bedroom with your partner, or make some time just to relax by yourself, Adam and Eve is your go-to. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. And make sure to enter offer code Mr. Creeps at checkout. 
This is an exclusive offer specific to this podcast, so be sure to use the code MrCreeps to get your 50% discount off any item, plus 100% free shipping, and get it fast with rush processing. Again, that's code MrCreeps at checkout. My friends and I took a vacation to a remote forest lodge. Something is wrong here. Written by Beardify. My friends weren't exactly enthusiastic about meeting me at a place called the Death Ridge Lodge. Even after I told them that, Death Ridge was just the name of the shepherd who used to own the land. Truth was, I was more than a little nervous myself. I had been out of the country for five years and there had been calls and letters, but my friends and I hadn't seen each other in all that time. Would we still have the connection that we once did? Some of the changes that time had wrought were surprising, others less though. We had all expected my stubborn, brilliant friend Jennifer to be an attorney like her father, but in a story straight out of a cheesy Hallmark movie, she had married a guy from a tiny town in Kentucky and had two kids. Meanwhile, Ned, a loudmouthed, extroverted redhead, had somehow ended up working from a lonely home office as a computer programmer. And then there was Zoe. She had been my crush since our sophomore year of college. It wasn't just her auburn hair or piercing green eyes. It was the care and honesty that she showed in everything she did. Before her, I had never met somebody who really listened, who really cared about other people without working their own angle. We had all expected great things for her, but in the end, she wound up like me, back up in her hometown, unsure about the future. But now that so much time had passed, would we even have anything in common anymore? As it turned out, I needn't have worried. Not even the wailing winter storm and unexpected power outages could dampen our good time. Ned, Zoe, Jennifer, and I gathered around a roaring flagstone fireplace, sharing our favorite scary stories and urban legends. It didn't matter that the howling wind made going outside deadly, or that snow would cut off the forest road to the outside world. We had warmth, food, booze, and our rediscovered friendship. We also had Lee. When we arrived, Lee explained to us that he was the off-season caretaker of Death Ridge Lodge and the surrounding cabins. During tourist season in the summer, the place was swarmed with hospitality workers, but from fall to spring, Lee mostly had the place to himself. When the blizzard hit, he had made a point of checking in on us. The temperature's going down out there, he warned us that fateful night. Visibility is almost zero. You kids wouldn't want to get lost out there tonight. Or any other night. Don't worry, Zoe smiled. We have no intention of going outside in that. She pointed to the wind-driven snow that was rattling against the window panes. It can't be that easy to get lost though, can it? Ned, always the contrarian, asked. I mean, we're on the side of a mountain. To go one way, you just go down. And to go the other way, you just go back up. Right? It's not that simple. Lee grunted, pulling up a stool. We're a hundred miles from civilization out here. 
and if you can't recognize any landmarks, all them pine trees out there look the same. Even if you think you know where you're going, this mountain likes to play tricks. The gentle slope you walk down in fall might be dangerously steep in the spring. Boulders tumble as streams change course, and pathways that disappear from one season to the next. There are dozens of trails crisscross in this old mountain. 1800s logging roads, game trails, other pathways so old that it's impossible to tell who made them. Trust me, you lose your way out there, all you're going to get is more and more lost. And then you'll start to panic. And at that point, if hypothermia and hunger and the bears don't get you, old man Deathrich and his dogs will. Deathrich? Dogs? Zoe and Jennifer asked at once. How much do you four know about Deathrich Lodge? Not much, I admitted. I was looking for a place where my old friends and I could meet up over the holidays. The place looked cozy, had hiking and skiing and good reviews. Besides, back then the weather forecast said that we would have a clear weekend. Lee nodded as if that was what he had expected. It's an odd place with an odd history. Just after the Revolutionary War, a man named Jebediah Deathrich showed up here and started construction on a cabin. He said that the mountain had called to him, and that he would seen it in a dream, and that Patrick Henry had gifted him the entire mountainside in exchange for services rendered during the war. There was plenty of land back then, and grants were being handed out like candy, so nobody called him on it. Besides, folks had wanted farmland, not the slope of a mountain. They all thought that Jeb Deathrich was crazy, but he carved a life out of these hills, swearing that he and the land were one flesh. Jeb and his sons, a felled forest, dragged out the stumps and planted orchards. They set up secret garden patches back in the woods, raised chickens, cows, and a flock of sheep. For a while, things were good. The old man stared into the fire. If you young people get bored with all this history, just say so. Well, it's not like we've got anything better to do now, do we? Ned scoffed. No, please go on, it's interesting. Zoe reassured Lee. Ned rolled his eyes. Well, the years rolled by, and Jeb died and passed his land on to his son and grandson who went on living the same way that he had. Meanwhile, towns were building up around the mountain. The more they expanded, the more folks demanded proof that the mountain really belonged to the death riches. By the end of the Civil War, that's to say, Jeb's great-grandson's time, nobody cared about yellowed papers and ancient claims. Folks wanted the mountain developed and kept suing until they found a judge who agreed with them. Amos Deathridge got a few acres and the rest went to mining and logging companies. But taking advantage of the Deathrich's land was no easy task. You see, the Deathriches refused to accept the court's decision. They kept living in their hidden shacks on the mountainside and made life tough for the companies who, from their point of view, were trespassing on their property. Every day there were downed trees on the road, supplies burnt, animals missing. It went on for decades all the way into the 1900s. And while nobody had been hurt in Amos Deathrich's little guerrilla war, 
It was costing those companies more than the mountain was even worth. They had to put a stop to it. The first sign of trouble was when Alice Dethridge, Amos's wife from back east, stopped coming into town to sell her honey and fruit preserves. A few days later, Amos was found in the middle of a dirt logging road, surrounded by his three mastiffs. They had all been shot to bits. Ten years later, some trappers found Alice and the kids in a shallow grave. They said it looked like they had died badly. So who did it? Jennifer asked. Well, nobody can prove nothing about nothing, but a group of flashy out-of-towners rode in on the last train from Chicago that night and left in the morning. Folks in town said they saw lantern lights going up the logging road and gunfire in the hollers. Lee stared thoughtfully into the fireplace. In a way, though, I guess you could say the death riches won out in the end. The mountain never yielded enough timber or coal to justify the expense. The companies that had fought so hard over the mountain, and even killed to keep it, all went bankrupt a few years after. This place was practically abandoned, till the National Parks craze took off in the 1950s. Some clever investors bought it off the bank for pennies. They built the cabins and lodge that we're sitting in today. But what does that all have to do with old man Deathrich and his dogs? Well, the mountain wasn't completely left alone after all them companies had closed down. The local men came up here to hunt. Grandmothers collected fruit from the Deathrich's woodland orchards. And the teenagers, well, they came up here to do what teenagers do. But over the years, rumors began to trickle down about strange sightings in these woods. Some folks got to thinking that maybe Amos Deathrich wasn't really dead. Or if he was, he was still around somehow. You mean like a ghost? I ventured. You call it what you want. Lee prodded at the dying embers. I'm just telling you how I had heard it. And you wouldn't believe some of the tales the folks in town have about this mountain. Like old Bruce Higgins who came back from deer hunting, all bitten and tore up with his rifle to miss in. Said he had been chased down the mountain by three snarling shepherd dogs, just like those huge mastiffs found shot beside Amos. Miss Nellie Price said she saw the old man himself stalking through the trees with a hundred-year-old hunting rifle and a sack of dead rabbits slung over his shoulder. Lee rambled on, and Jennifer tried to hide a smile. I'm sorry, she chuckled. It's just, my dad was a hunter and he used to see things in the woods too. Usually after his fifth beer. And my great-aunt Mildred was convinced she was hearing whispers in her walls. Until my mother got rid of the bird's nest in her chimney. The bird's song had been echoing in the pipes. Sounded like real human voices. My point is, there's a snowball effect with stories like these. They live rent-free in the back of people's minds. And when they see something that they can't explain, they just keep on adding to them. I'm not saying that you're wrong, Lee grumbled. I've never seen old man Amos myself, and I've lived here all my life. But I will say that there's something off about this mountain. Maybe it goes all the way back to Jeb Deathrich or even before that. Otherwise, how can you account for all the disappearances? Like the four high schoolers who went camping up here in a dare back in the 1970s. 
Nothing was left of them but a trampled down tent and the soggy ashes of their fire. Wasn't there an investigation? Zoe asked. Oh, sure there was. The police conducted that the girls had run away from home. Then when Terry Bannister and his nine-year-old son didn't come back from their hiking trip, they blamed wolves. When a local artist's car was found along a logging road with spikes in the tires and the driver's side door hanging off its hinges, they called it an abandoned vehicle. They just towed it back into town and didn't even look for her. Don't you see where I'm going with this? Ever since the logging and mining dried up, tourism is the only thing keeping those little towns afloat. The ghost of Amos Deathrich and his three hounds makes for a fine local legend. But if the summer crowd ever found out about the real horrible crimes that happened up in this mountain every year, it'd be the death of the whole industry. I call BS, Ned laughed. This sounds an awful lot like a scary story that locals use to scare us wide-eyed out-of-towners with. Am I right? Call it what you want. But I wouldn't go outside until the storm passes if I were you. He pulled on his boots and wrapped himself in his winter gear, so weathered and worn that it was all the same uniform tone of grayish-brown. You kids got everything you need. We nodded and he waved to us as he trudged out of the door. Stay safe out there. I called out too late. The only response was the rattling of the screen door and the howling of the wind, if it was the wind. I thought of the savage jaws of enormous mastiffs and I shuddered. We all slept beside the fireplace that night. Everyone had their own excuse. Ned claimed the rooms were too cold. Zoe said she wanted to have a slumber party. Jennifer had already fallen asleep in her chair. But I knew our real reason for keeping close to each other was that Lee's tale had unnerved all of us more than we would have liked to admit. We craved the primal comforts of fire, warmth, and companionship. Before going to sleep, I dared to take a look out of the frozen window, but all I could see was blackness. Too cold even for a ghost, I told myself with a chuckle, before stirring the fire and curling up in one of the lodge's thick blankets. My dreams were haunted by worm-eaten faces in shallow graves and shadowy figures on desolate mountain paths. I woke before anybody else in the morning. I had always loved the peace of being awake while others slept. I took my time making my coffee and examining what the storm had done to the mountainside. The trees were bent, icy spikes stabbing into an ominous gray sky. At least a foot of snow covered the lodge patio. Frigid air blasted my face as I heaved open the sliding glass door and stepped out into the winter wonderland. As beautiful as it was, something more than the cold was bothering me. It took me a moment to fully realize what it was. There were no footprints leading to the cabin where Lee was staying. True, maybe the snow had filled them in, but no smoke rose from the chimney either. Where had he gone? I was leaning out over the railing for a better view when I heard a low growl from behind me. I wasn't alone on the patio. Half-frozen drool hung from the mastiff's gaping jaws. Its hazel eyes burned with fury. Another identical dog growled behind me. They were trying to cut off my escape. 
I bolted for the door and slid it shut just before a mouth as large as my face smashed into the glass, cracking it. The enormous dog lunged again, widening the spiderweb pattern on the glass. Barks and howls chilled my blood. My friends were waking, but not fast enough. Just a few more minutes. Zoe mumbled while I shook her. Holy crap, Ned screamed, pointing at the mastiff slamming itself into the glass. Get to the kitchen. Jennifer grabbed the fire poker and waved us through before slamming the kitchen's heavy wooden door. From outside, barks, snarls, and shattering glass. Heavy canine steps across the hardwood. A long, mournful howl echoed through the cabin, and three sets of paws began scratching at the door. I wondered if the enormous dogs outside were calling to their master. Oh my god, oh my god, what the heck is going on? Ned jabbed his finger at my chest like all of this was my fault. Is this some kind of sick joke? Jennifer demanded. How should I know? I shouted back at Ned. I know what's going on. Zoe murmured. Amos Deathridge. We're on his mountain and those are his dogs. Just how Lee described them. Ghost dogs? Ned rolled his eyes. Come on. That mastiff out there just smashed its head against a sliding glass door until it broke. What do you call that normal dog behavior? Listen. Jennifer put her ear to the wooden door as it shook beneath the dog's attack. They're not just scratching at the door. They're gnawing on it. Those aren't ordinary dogs, and speaking of Lee, where is he? I don't think he made it back last night. I thought of the smokeless chimney and the untrammeled snow. The kindly old caretaker was probably lying beneath it with his throat ripped out. Amos had come for him at last. The door rattled on its hinges. We gotta find a way out of here. That door is not gonna last much longer. Jennifer whispered, unlatching the small window above the sink. Oh sure, great plan. Ned rolled his eyes. Let's run through the woods in sub-zero temperatures in our pajamas. What could possibly go wrong? What do you suggest then? Jennifer challenged, as much as I hated to admit it, I mean Ned was right. Last night's fire was dead and its warmth was fading fast. If Amos and his dogs didn't kill us, the cold would. Zoe was already struggling to keep herself from trembling. While the rest of us argued, she had been scrounging for supplies. She had found a few cobwebby soup cans, three dull kitchen knives, an almost empty box of matches, and a trap door. It took all of our strength to heave it open, and even then the light didn't reach whatever waited at the bottom. One thing, however, was clear. We were running out of time. The timbers on the kitchen door splintered, treating us to a view of slobbering fangs. The rusty window frame screeched as Jennifer flung it open. I looked down at her bare feet. Jen, going out there is death. I will not wait to die in some dark hole. We gotta make a run for it. Of course, I suddenly remembered that Jennifer had claustrophobia. That cellar must have looked like her worst nightmare. I know you're scared and we all are, but... But nothing. I'm going. Jennifer wiped away her tears with her pajama sleeve and leapt down into the snow. 
Behind us, the dogs had almost broken through. Ned, Zoe, and I sprinted for the trap door and slammed it shut behind us. The Mastiffs sniffed around and dug at the floor over our heads, but only for a moment. A horrifically human whistle split the silent winter air outside, followed by a cruel command. Sicker boys. First came barks and then snarls, and Jennifer began to scream. Maybe it was a blessing that we couldn't see what was happening out among the frozen trees. I pressed my fists against my ears and shut my eyes tight against the awful ripping and gnawing, barely audible over Jennifer's screams. When it was finally over, the chattering of our teeth felt like the only noise left in the world. I had forgotten how much the cold could physically hurt. With trembling fingers, Zoe struck a match. We were in a low ceiling dirt cellar. Decades of cobwebs hung like hideous curtains above us and generations of junk had been scattered carelessly across the uneven ground. We rummaged through it by matchlight, looking for something, anything that we could use. Pay dirt, Ned shouted. He had found a canvas sack full of moth-eaten wool blankets, leather boots and parkas beneath a heap of snowshoes. We bundled up immediately grateful for the warmth, but there was little else of value in the heaped rubbish around us, and we were running out of matches. This is weird, Zoe nudged me. She had found an old wooden chest full of century-old dresses, leather bags and belts and a tiny silver locket. The cellar ceiling groaned with heavy footsteps. Zoe instinctively pocketed the locket and grabbed my arm. Now where'd the rest of you run off to? The voice above us was the same one that had sicked the Mastiffs on Jennifer. There was something antiquated, gravelly, and wild about it. Something that made me think of the unsettling tale of the Deathrich clan. Amos, Zoe mouthed, pointing to the far side of the cellar. The crumbling stone wall faded into blackness but as I crawled silently closer, I could see what lay above. A coal chute, an escape. The footsteps overhead left the kitchen. I imagined they were heading upstairs to check the bedrooms. We had shoes and a way of keeping warm, even if they were filthy and they fit badly. If we were going to try to slip out through the coal chute, it was now or never. Ned's hand shot out and grabbed my wrist as I struggled to push open the rusted shoe cover. Are you crazy? He hissed. Didn't you hear what happened to Jen out there? Jen had a point too, I whispered. Whoever or whatever is up there is bound to check down here eventually. Do you want to be down here when that happens? I'll take my chances. Ned had found an ice axe and the heaps of junk and held it with a white knuckle grip. I realized that my loudmouth childhood friend was even more frightened than Zoe and I. To my surprise, Zoe's cold hand slid into mine. Are you ready? She asked. I nodded. Come on, Ned. Come with us. There won't be another chance. No way. I'm staying right here. Ned shook his head. The last I saw of him was his pale, stunned face, watching us scramble out into the winter sun. Zoe and I trudged through the snow, afraid to look back, 
afraid of what might be following. We kept our eyes away from the red patches in the white where Jennifer had met her end, aiming instead for a suspicious trail of footprints that led from the woods up to Deathridge Lodge, one large human and three dogs. Ghosts don't leave footprints, do they? Zoe murmured. I shook my head, wondering where this insane day would lead us. Zoe and I had barely entered the silence of the pine forest when we heard the gunshot, the boom of a shotgun blast. Ned had been found. Zoe grabbed my arm and I could feel her warmth through our improvised blanket coats. It was what I had dreamed of when I had planned this vacation, alone with Zoe holding her close in the winter woods. But now my dream had turned into a nightmare. The triumphant baying of the dogs and a man's maniac laughter carried to us by the wind confirmed what we already feared. Our friend was dead. For a long minute we just held each other, listening to our thundering heartbeats, a reminder that we were still alive. But for how long? The footprints in the snow seemed to follow a sort of game trail, just like the ones Lee said the death riches had used. A small creek ran alongside it. My feet were exhausted from slogging through the high snow, but we had to put more distance between us and pursuit. Right around the time that I lost sensation in my feet, we rounded a corner and saw a slumped over hut up ahead. The footprints that we had been following seemed to originate from there. I swallowed hard and looked back at the boulder-strewn mountainside behind us. Hide up there, I told Zoe. I'll see if it's safe. I'll come with you. This is no time to be a... She began. Listen, if it's not safe, we're both dead. This way, at least one of us makes it. Are you sure? If we don't find warmth, food, and shelter, we're dead anyway. I've got to see what's in there, and if you... Zoe shut me up with a strong hug. Let me go instead. I want you to keep watch for me. I didn't like the idea at all, but I could see in Zoe's eyes that her mind was made up. She left me with an extra blanket and the other supplies that she had dug out of the cellar. I set up a vantage point behind a boulder where I could see without being seen, or so I hoped. Now that the sun was setting and my sweat began to cool, I found myself rethinking what I had said to Zoe. I had intentionally exaggerated when I told her that we would die without shelter or at least I thought so at the time. But as the pine tree shadows reached out for us like long fingers and the temperature dropped, I wasn't so sure. I wondered if covering ourselves with dirt would keep us warm enough, or if I would even be able to light a fire with my shaking hands. I fiddled nervously with the first thing that I grabbed out of Zoe's blanket, that weird silver locket. I realized that it had a clasp, it was probably one of those necklaces that held pictures inside. Down below, Zoe was a tiny black shape on the sagging steps of the hut. She pushed open the creaking door. I was so concerned about what might come out of it that I had forgotten to pay attention to the path below. I suddenly sensed a presence just a few feet away. You're right, son, a voice muttered behind me. I nearly jumped out of my skin before I recognized it. Lee, I could have laughed for joy. If anybody knew a safe way off of this mountain, it was him. We were attacked, 
I know it sounds crazy, but I think Amos and his three dogs. Shh. I seen him on my way down here, but don't you worry. Everything's gonna be alright now. Where's the girl, is she? You mean Zoe? She's down there by the hut. Good. Lee whistled and his voice changed. Sicker boys. Three huge mastiffs bounded on the path toward the hut, barking loudly and Lee stepped backward. He held an ancient shotgun in his hands. Only then did I look down at the open heart-shaped locket that I held in my hands. The black and white photo on the right showed a kindly looking woman named Alice Deathridge. But the photo on the left was captioned Amos Deathridge. The face it showed was a familiar one indeed. It was staring back at me from behind the barrel of a gun. Amos. The dog circled the hut below howling. Any minute now, they would corner Zoe. Don't tell me you believe in ghosts. I thought you city folk were supposed to be smart. Try this on for size. Alice Deathrich survived the awful thing those flashy out-of-towners did to her. Maybe she had a baby a few months later. A feral kid who raised himself after she died from her lingering injuries ten years later. Otherwise, who would have buried her for those trappers to find? Then maybe later, that kid grew up and decided that he didn't want the family name to die with him. Maybe he kidnapped one of them girls that came up here in the 1970s and used to get himself an heir. Maybe that heir is standing here right now, pointing all Amos's rifle in the face of yet another trespasser. I lifted my hand slowly. Just, just don't hurt Zoe. Hurt her? Oh no, I need her. I'm gonna breed myself an heir the same way that my father did, and raise him to carry in the fight till this mountain is ours again. After you four go missing, even the tourism people won't be able to cover it up anymore. Lee Deathridge's speech was cut short by the half-rotten log that slammed into the side of his head. Zoe hit him two or three more times, but I doubt the blows were necessary. Lee Deathridge had met the fate of his ancestors, but I could hear his dogs baying below from inside of the hut. You alright? Zoe asked. How did you? I wondered. That hut must be where he's been living. It was dim and filthy, but I saw a pile of rope right around the time that I heard those dogs charging down the trail. I tied it to the front doorknob and left it open just to crack, while I stood by the back door and waited for my moment. When those dogs charged in, I tugged the front door shut and slipped out the back. Deathrich's dogs are trapped in there for now. I remembered how quickly the three mastiffs had gnawed their way through the lodge's kitchen door and shuddered. But would they even pursue us without Lee Deathrich urging them on? We didn't wait around to find out. Night had fallen by the time that we reached Deathrich Lodge. It felt like years had passed since we had fled the cellar that morning. Too emotionally and physically exhausted to talk much, Zoe and I distracted ourselves with the simple task of survival. Building a fire, heating water, gathering blankets, reinforcing the doors in case the dogs or anything else came back. It had been the longest day of my life and I ended it curled up with Zoe in front of the lodge, a fireplace. 
By morning, the snow had melted it, and the unpaved, switchbacking road off of the Deathrich's Mountain seemed just barely passable. Once we started driving, I realized just how much danger we were in. The back of my Corolla fishtailed around every turn, and twice the tires stuck in slushy mud and began to slide towards the cliffs beside us. When Zoe got out of the car to help me free it, I saw something that I still can't explain. Maybe it was just a hallucination brought on by stress, but... I swear that I saw another Amos Deathrich look-alike watching us from the woods. Was the mountain really haunted? Even worse, did Lee Deathrich have a brother? When I looked again, they were gone. I didn't have any answer then, and I still don't. But I suggest you stay away from Deathrich Lodge. Life is scary when you quit your job and literally nobody noticed. Life is scary when you wink at your crush as you pass by your desk only to realize that you have toilet paper stuck to your heel. Life is even scary when it's your first date and you really need to fart. Now we all deal with Sunday scaries, right? That oh crap, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dread feelings that hit you on Sunday evenings when you think about work or school the next day, or life in general. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. Sunday Scary CBD gummies were made to defeat the crap life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind. Super moms, students, party animals, regretful drunk texters, and everything in between. Now me personally, I don't relax very well. I've never been someone who can just sit down and chill out. I always feel like I need to be doing something. Whether that is work-wise or at home, it's just hard to shut off my brain and chill. While that can be positive in some ways, it also makes me overthink and stress myself out. Sunday Scaries are vitamin-boosted CBD gummies that actually work and they chill me out fast. Look, we all have the right to live scare-free. So whether you need to take the edge off, calm your racing mind, or sleep better, or just chill. Take two CBD gummies every day to keep the scaries away. Let me save you with my 25% discount. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code MrCreeps for your discount. That's sundayscaries.com promo code MrCreeps for 25% off. I'm a cast member at Disneyland and I have some horrifying secrets to share. Written by Jordan Group. Teddy and I have been working at Disneyland for years. The two of us had seen hundreds if not thousands of young cast members come and go, heading off to college or to better jobs and brighter futures. Meanwhile, the two of us stuck around and became a running joke to some of the younger employees since we were never promoted to management. Most of the lower level cast members were young, in their early 20s or late teens and to them it was only a part time gig. A way to make money for college or to pass a bit of time until their real lives and careers began. But Teddy and I were lifers, and some would say losers. Although I would never attach that label to myself willingly, I had heard it whispered enough times to know that it was what other people thought of us. 
We had both been there for nearly two decades and had worked on pretty much every single attraction, but had never been deemed responsible enough to be promoted to supervisor status. Over that time, I found out a lot of secrets about the place, some things that are known to the public, but also some revelations that aren't talked about anywhere. Did you know that cast members who work as mascots have to wear communal underwear? Yeah, that's right. They share the same underoos and they get washed in between uses, at least in theory. Who knows what weirdo came up with that idea. Or how about the fact that the skeletons on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride were originally constructed out of real bones? Despite the park's insistence that all of the bones were removed, a few still remain. Management lost track of which were real and which were fake and they just left the real ones in there along with the imposters. But when you're up close, it's easy to tell them apart. The real ones are a little more yellow when they're heavier than the plaster ones. There are plenty of morbid secrets like that. People scatter the ashes of their deceased loved ones in the park so often that we actually have a not-so-subtle codename for it. White Powder Alert. The Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean are the most common places, but it's done all over, and who knows how often people get away with it without us noticing. Code 101 means a ride is temporarily shut down, while Code 5 or a protein spill means that somebody has vomited on a ride and it needs to be cleaned up. Those spills are often the cause of ride shutdowns, rather than mechanical issues. Oh, and if you hear yourself or somebody else being referred to as a treasured guest, it doesn't mean that you're a VIP. It's actually our code word for saying that you're being an a-hole. There are stories of ghosts, some told by people who never believed in such things before witnessing them in the park. The specter of Walt Disney himself had been seen at times, outside of Sleeping Beauty's castle just on the other side of the drawbridge or sometimes he's seen at night, just outside of his old apartment on Main Street, where occasionally you might smell a whiff of cigarette smoke, despite the fact that such things are banned inside of the park. Walt and his family had once lived there so they could spy on visitors and listen to their opinions about the park. They would eavesdrop on their conversations from their second floor apartment, just above street level. George, a dead electrician, supposedly haunts the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and every morning cast members must call out, Good morning, George, at the start of the day. Otherwise, the ride will mysteriously have issues all day long. Unexpected shutdowns and other strange occurrences are commonplace if George isn't given his proper morning greeting. And have you heard about the animatronics and It's a Small World run all night long? Yep, those rumors are true too. In fact, quite a few of the lifelike robots stay in motion 24-7, even throughout the lockdowns and park shutdowns a couple of years back. If you ask management about this, they'll tell you it's because the attractions are cheaper to maintain this way. They break down less frequently if they're in constant motion. That's the excuse that we get anyways but I've come to realize that there might be far more terrifying reasons for this. Something so disturbing and twisted that I wouldn't have thought it'd be possible if I hadn't witnessed it for myself. Teddy and I were on our lunch break when we found the storage room, 
We were looking for somewhere private since Teddy had brought a bit of homegrown greenery and his favorite piece of glassware that day. The park has miles and miles of tunnels crisscrossing underneath it, and Teddy and I had explored most of the labyrinth over our years of service. Like everything in the park, there was a stupid nickname for these underground tunnels. They had been dubbed Utilidors by some management type in the distant past. Most of the cast members just called them the tunnels, and they were so vast that we often used golf carts to get from one end to the other. There were odd dead ends and some tunnels seemed to intentionally lead to nowhere. We were currently in one such useless utilidor when we noticed an odd looking door which appeared to be at least a half century old, if not more. It had a rusted placard hanging on its surface which read, Obsolete Animatronic Storage. Hey, didn't there used to be a vending machine here? Teddy asked. Who cares? Let's see if it's open. Uh, we've only got 20 minutes left. I said looking at the time on my cell phone. The doorknob turned in my hand and the two of us went inside. I looked for a light switch on the wall to my right, but I didn't find one. It was pitch black and impossible to see anything. Using the flashlight on my cell, I cast a beam of light around the room, trying to see what kind of space we were currently in. There were people-shaped forms all around us, draped in tarps and tablecloths. The room was as long as a football field, but it was narrow, only about 15 feet across. Creepy, Teddy said, taking the words right out of my mouth. Well, I guess it did say this was animatronic storage. It must be really old. He wandered away from the door and it clicked shut behind him. Something about that made me nervous, but I ignored the feeling. The door had been unlocked and that meant we would be able to get out again. But still, I reached for the doorknob to check it. My hand was about to touch the polished brass when Teddy called out, making me jump. Whoa, check this out, he said, sounding excited. I left the door, turning around to see what he was looking at. He had his cell phone flashlight on now as well and was lifting up one of the tarps to look at what was underneath. Man, this thing is freaky looking. He pulled the tarp all the way off and I saw what he meant. The thing hidden underneath was very creepy. It had the goateed face of a young man but the ears and nubby horns of a goat, looking far too real. Its lower half looked like it also belonged to a goat. The thing reminded me of a satyr, those drunken, lustful half-goat gods from Greek mythology. I tried to figure out why it was making me feel so uneasy, and I realized it was the eyes. They were too lifelike, far more real than the animatronics out in the park. And the look of the skin, the way that it reflected the light and everything about it. It looked like this was a real creature, or more likely a man who had been sewn to the body of a goat in a very thorough way, making the seams blend together perfectly. And Teddy was already moving on to the next one, looking under another tarp. He left me alone with this one and I looked back down at it as I let go of the cover and let it fall over his face again. Flinching backwards, I nearly screamed, as I could have sworn the eyes of the thing were looking up at me, just as I had dropped the tarp over its face again. 
My heart was beating fast now and I tried to tell myself that it was a trick of the light or that the eyes had been looking up that way the whole time and I had just had it noticed. We need to go, I heard myself say, but Teddy wasn't listening. Holy crap, this one's even more messed up. Dude, you gotta check this out. I opened my mouth to say, no, let's get out of here, but the words caught on my throat. The satyr creature under the tarp was clearly moving now. Its head was still draped in the plastic sheet, but I could see it turning up to look at me, as if its gaze could penetrate through the tarp. Dude, come check this out, Teddy was saying, pulling the next sheet off and dropping it to the floor. I saw what he was referring to, my eyes drawn to it despite my terror of the draped creature just in front of me. This one was tall, standing nearly ten feet. It had a one large eye instead of two. Man, whoever made these things were tripping on acid or something. Look at this, it looks like they jacked an eyeball from an elephant and stuffed it into some dude's forehead. I think they were trying to make a cyclops. I could barely hear him as now the thing in front of me wasn't the only figure in the room which was moving. To my left, the entire row of covered forms were beginning to stretch and turn as if waking up from a very long sleep. Some were tall and some were short like the satyr thing on my right, but all of them were alive. I realized that I was very cold all of a sudden, and I breathed out to see my breath steaming in the air. A compressor groaned to life and I saw a nearby vent cough out a frosty plume, as if something had been jammed or broken and was suddenly operating again. The temperature in the room began to plummet, and a second later I was freezing cold, the rushing air chilling the back of my neck. Finally, I was shocked out of my stupor and managed to get out a word. Teddy, I croaked, but it was too late. The giant cyclops hand shot out and grabbed my friend by the throat. It lifted him up into the air while his legs caked and his arms thrashed, trying to break its grip. He was choking and sputtering, flailing madly as he tried to free himself. The cyclops held firmly onto his throat and I heard the sounds of cartilage and bones being crushed. His spine popped and his head bent back at an impossible angle his skull lolling backwards like a broken Pez dispenser. And then the giant dropped him to the concrete floor of the room, and his phone clattered and turned over, casting half the room in darkness again. I backed away, feeling like I was moving in slow motion but unable to go any quicker. Reaching back for the doorknob, I felt like the tunnel had grown by a hundred feet. It was further away than could be possible. I kept backing up, taking slow and quiet steps. The figures were moving toward me now. All of them were closing the gap and slowly walking in my direction. Their forms were covered and draped in bedsheets, tarps, and tablecloths, as if this place had been thrown together in a hurry. Hastily constructed to house these possessed animatronics, or whatever these creatures were. Cold air was filling the room, making it even more difficult to move. My skin felt like it was being stabbed with pins and needles, the freezing wind going right through my summer clothing. There was a sound of tearing flesh and blood being spilled, and I looked to see several of the monsters were tearing the skin from Teddy's face, peeling it from the bones with some difficulty, 
like trying to open an underripe orange. The worst part was is that it looked like he was still alive. He was opening his mouth and closing it like a fish out of water. His eyes wide open as if he would be screaming if he were capable of it. I tried to tear my eyes away from this but I could not and I found myself staring at him as they took the flash from his face. I backed up hard into something and realized that it was the door. In the darkness I felt for the doorknob behind me but I couldn't find it. The creatures were still moving toward me all of their faces covered by the sheets except for the massive cyclops which had killed my friend. Its one huge eyeball was fixed on me and it moved in lockstep with the other creatures as if they had all shared one hive mind. As they approached a few stepped on each other's coverings tearing them away and revealing their hideous faces. I saw a woman's upper body sewn onto the legs of a deer and a man with the hindquarters of a bull, their faces full of mute anger. My hand groped for the doorknob desperately and after several long moments, it settled on the smooth brass. It was so cold, almost frozen. I turned around expecting the doorknob to turn easily again but this time it was stuck. I couldn't tell if it was locked or frozen solid, but either way, it wouldn't budge. Feeling like there would be icy hands around my throat at any second, I was too terrified to turn back around. I heard the sounds of shuffling feet moving closer, the icy wind blowing through my clothes and raising goosebumps on my skin. I began to pound against the door with my fists, banging on it as hard as I could as I screamed for help pleading for somebody to save me. Help! Open the door! I yelled at the top of my lungs. The corridor that we had entered from was a dead end, rarely used by anyone. Of course, this door would be locked only from the inside, I thought to myself. Who would offer an escape to these animatronic demons? If they had ever been imbued with any form of failsafe, it was long out of commission and useless. These creatures had no mercy and no respect for human life. They wanted blood and fresh faces to create more of themselves, to raise an army of undead, robotic soldiers. Manic thoughts were racing through my head as I tried to think of another way out. There had to be something some other way. I turned around, hoping for some other exit to present itself, but instead I just saw hundreds of shrouded forms stepping closer until they were just a few feet away. A gurgling, wheezing sound could be heard from behind them, and I realized it was the labored breathing of Teddy slowly dying. If I didn't find a way out, it would be me next. With one desperate move, I kicked out towards the head of the nearest shrouded figure, the satyr. My foot connected with its face, and as it did, the entire crowd fell back a step, as if hurting one of them would hurt them all. I lashed out with another blow, punching it in the gut, and the crowd took another wounded step backwards. I used the newfound space to my advantage and took a short running start towards the door, kicking it hard with my boot. I connected squarely with the spot beside the doorknob. It rattled in the frame, but it didn't budge. Taking a quick look back over my shoulder, I saw the crowd of animatronic creatures were now coming at me again with renewed anger. They looked furious at me for attacking one of them and apparently injuring it. 
The satyr was thumped forward, its joints making creaking noises as it made its way toward me, its movements jerky and disorganized. I kicked the door again harder this time, using every ounce of force that I could muster. I heard something splinter and break, but still it didn't budge. Icy hands gripped my throat from behind and I threw an elbow backwards to try to break free. It connected with whatever it grabbed to hold of me, but it didn't let go. Instead, its grip tightened, choking me and squeezing my throat until I couldn't breathe. I let out another strangled cry for help, but no sound came out this time. The grip on my windpipe was making it impossible to call out. My feet were going numb from the cold, which seemed to have intensified even more somehow. I hadn't thought it was possible to feel any colder, but realized whoever was controlling the temperature of this place was doing this on purpose. These things did not like the cold, and it put them into a state of hibernation. But for some reason, this place had been almost room temperature when we had entered, bringing these creatures back to life. With one more desperate effort, I lifted my leg and kicked it as hard as I could, my heel connecting with the door just beside the latch. Something shattered and broke loudly, and the door swung open on its hinges. The momentum brought me forward and I found myself tumbling back into the corridor. Whatever had grabbed a hold of me from behind came with me, the icy hands frozen around my neck. As I landed, the thing's fingers broke off like icicles shattering on impact. The shrouded creature was writhing on the floor looking as if it wanted to get up to chase me but wasn't quite capable of it yet. It was still too cold. I stumbled to my feet and ran from there, not really thinking about my mistake until I was far away from that spot. When it occurred to me what I had done, it was too late. I had let those things out. I had opened the door, freeing them, and I had allowed the warm air inside so they could come back to life and escape. I was too terrified to stay in the park. I went home immediately without saying a word to anyone, and then called my boss and told him that I was sick with the stomach flu. I apologized, saying that I had been throwing up in the bathroom and didn't want to cause a code 5 while on stage. He told me that that was okay since he knew that I was a dedicated employee, a trusted cast member who had been with the park for years, but he did ask if I had seen Teddy. I had to lie and tell him no. I'm supposed to go back to work tomorrow for the first time since this all happened. The worst part about it is and nobody has reported Teddy missing. His family isn't called to say anything either. It's almost like none of it ever happened. Except I've got the marks around my neck. The bruises that prove I didn't imagine it. I just got a strange text message from Teddy's cell phone number. See you at work tomorrow, buddy, it said, accompanied by a mouse emoji. Me and some other cast members have a big surprise for you. My friends and I explored an abandoned ship. It was a horrible mistake. Written by J.L. Goodwin, 1990. At the boat ramp around the corner from my apartment lies a white behemoth, sitting silent as a tomb. Moored to a dock which no longer connects to shore, she bobs up and down in the water, 
only disturbed by the wake of passing boats. Rust has begun to creep down each of her 140-foot long sides, almost looking as though some unseen ocean monster had gouged into it with its claws, and no light ever emanates from her many windows and portholes. The cam has, in a way, become part of my town's landscape for the last two decades and change, ever since her previous owners failed to pay the mooring fees for it, and it was seized both by the local government and the U.S. Marshals Service for separate reasons. There have been rumors of everything from drugs to botched scientific experiments taking place on board during her history. She originally was moored closer to downtown, but a few years ago she was moved to her new home and has sat there ever since. It was thanks to those rumors that one day while sitting on the couch playing video games with my two friends, Darren and Zeke, that the plan was hatched. We had taken a small break and Zeke stood up to grab a beer from the fridge. You know, I always wondered what exactly happened with that ship to make something which was once so beautiful and grand, just, you know, get abandoned and forgotten about. I twisted around on the couch to see him looking out of my kitchen window. I knew exactly what he was referring to. Yeah, dude, your guess is as good as mine, man, I answered. Now get back here and help us beat these putzes. There was a moment's pause and I heard him walk back over. For the next few hours, there was no mention of the ship as we slogged our way through deathmatch after deathmatch. I honestly thought the whole thing had been dropped. That was until we had wrapped up things for the night and my friends got ready to head home. You know what? Darren asked as he slipped on his jacket. For a change of pace, we should have a bit of adventure. You know, get out of the house instead of wasting ourselves away on the couch. Zeke and I exchanged glances with each other and then shrugged. Well, what do you got in mind? I asked him. The second the question left my lips... I knew I shouldn't have taken the bait, as an extremely mischievous smile spread across his face. Why don't we sneak on board the cam on Friday night, finally see for ourselves what she looks like on the inside? I felt a pang of surprise shoot through me. Zeke was always the one suggesting wild and slightly dangerous things for us to do, but to hear Darren, who usually seemed a bit antsy about breaking the rules, volunteers something of this nature to do, frankly shocked me. Dude, you serious? Zeke asked him. He nodded. Seriously, with everybody celebrating Easter with their families, the boat dock will be pretty much empty on Saturday night. I'm sick of just doing the same stuff over and over. Sick of playing it safe. I say we go a bit buck wild. He cast a hopeful look our way. For a second, my mind remained blank and then it clicked. Maggie. His girlfriend of three years had recently broken up with him for another man. And to say that he hadn't taken it well would be like calling the Chernobyl meltdown a small accident. He had changed since then, becoming a bit darker and more willing to bend the rules. He gave us both a hopeful look. What about it? Zeke immediately laughed. Dude, heck yes, you're speaking my language now. I became aware that both of them were now looking at me, 
What do you say, Adrian? Darren asked me. You in? For a moment, I considered politely declining, making up some excuse about being busy this weekend. Trapezing around a pretty much abandoned and possibly dangerous ship, one which it was common knowledge was often used by the homeless as a shelter during the storms, was not exactly my idea of a fun time. But then I caved. I knew Darren was only doing this as a way to keep his mind off of his breakup, and if I left him alone with Zeke, without anybody to keep things from getting too out of hand, God only knew where things would end up. Sure, why not, I said. Immediately, both of my friends broke into soft cheers, slapping me on the shoulders and the back. For a few more minutes, we discussed exactly how it would go. Zeke's parents owned an old motorboat from the early 60s, and where their dock was just up the estuary from the cam, we would use it, motoring down and tying up on the far side of the ship so we could climb aboard, quickly check it out, and leave. Later that night, I lay awake in bed, staring up at the white popcorn-style ceiling of my bedroom. What exactly did I just get myself into? I wondered. Shaking my head, I turned over on my side and drifted off into a rather restful and dreamless sleep. I had no idea that it would be one of the last good nights of sleep that I would ever have. The next day and a half passed by in a blur. Before I knew it, it was late Saturday afternoon. As much as I was admittedly a little tense about what we were about to do, I still wasn't going to back out. However, I did stop by Empire Mercantile to pick up a few items that I wanted for the trip before heading to Zeke's parents' house. As I drove through the quickly emptying streets, I craned down to look at the windshield on my Lincoln at the setting sun. It looked almost blood red, sinking below the horizon. For some reason, it made me shiver slightly. I shook my head, speaking aloud as I pulled into the driveway. Get a grip, Adrian. Knock that superstitious crap off. There's nothing ominous about a red-setting sun. Pushing the feeling away, I got out and passed around my purchases to the others. Each of us now had a pair of thick, tear-resistant and waterproof gloves, and a small but powerful flashlight. What are the gloves for? Zeke asked as we walked down the backyard to the dock. I raised an eyebrow at him. Have you seen how much rust is all over that ship? You want to cut yourself on a piece of rusty metal and risk getting tetanus or something. A look of realization passed over his face as my words had registered. Oh, was all that he said and then went silent. The three of us strode down the dock and climbed down into the 18-foot wooden boat. And a second later, the big black and silver Mercury 1000 outboard roared to life. Here, man, Zeke said, offering me the wheel. You're the best of the three of us at piloting a boat. I don't want to piss off my folks by hitting anything. I rolled my eyes slightly, but sat down in the seat, and after the stern and bow lines had been cast off, nudged the throttle forward slightly. Flicking on the running lights, we pulled away from the dock and began our journey down to the cam. Everyone was silent on the journey, though whether the silence was from excitement or apprehension, I couldn't tell. I gazed ahead of me, looking around as I allowed the 60-year-old motor to open up to full throttle, 
The last remnants of daylight were just barely visible over the edge of the dunes which separated the river from the Pacific Ocean. It honestly is a bit eerie out here when everybody else has gone home for the night. I thought as we passed by the channel marker buoy. All I could hear was the slap of the water against the boat's hull, the drone of the outboard, and occasionally a seagull cry overhead. I closed my eyes for a moment, inhaling the rather calming smell of the sea spray in the air, along with the mudflats which had begun rising from the water with the arrival of low tide. The slight sense of peace was shattered by Darren's voice behind me. There, to port. My eyes snapped open and I glanced off to my left. He was right. I could clearly see the white paint standing out a good bit in the gathering darkness. Slowing the boat, I searched for someplace safe for us to tie up alongside of her. Darren realized what I was looking for. Adrian, there, there's a boarding ladder on her side. Large obvious wooden steps set into the hull led of the starboard side of the ship from the waterline. I nodded. Hey, nice catch, man, I said, looking back to see a smile of accomplishment adorning his face. Slowing the boat down even further, I swung it around and approached the ladder. Zeke climbed past me and over the windshield onto the bow area, picking up the curled bow line to help tie the boat up. I put the boat into neutral and let it coast the final few feet to the side. Careful, bro. I called out softly as I saw my friend was preparing to step off the boat and onto the ladder. Hey, don't worry, dude, I got this. He called back confidently, and with a last a cocky smile, he hopped from the boat and onto the ladder, causing a slight spike in anxiety to shoot through me. I watched him climb quickly up the ladder, reaching the railing and lifting himself over it. A moment later, I saw the bow line tighten and his face appeared at the railing again. Hey, stern line, Dar. He called and after a few attempts at throwing the line, with varying degrees of success, the boat was successfully tied up. I killed the engine as Darren climbed up the ladder, allowing the silence to overtake the estuary again. For a moment, I stood at the gunwale of the boat my hand on the first wooden handhold and wondered again what we were getting ourselves into. A little bit too late to back out now though. Sighing slightly, I tightened my gloved hands on the purchase and I climbed up. A moment later I hoisted myself over the rusty railing and finally was aboard looking around at what I had seen from my apartment window for years. I could immediately tell that the converted fairy in her glory days had once been both extremely beautiful and extremely luxurious. The wood below my feet now weathered with time must have cost a pretty penny to install when the ship had been built back in 1938, and it gave off an air of sophistication. Well, sophistication once, now ruin, I thought. Turning on my flashlight, I looked around to see where the other two had gotten off to. A flash of motion caught my eye from the stern section. I thought that I spied Zeke disappearing around a corner, where I knew from my walks down to the boat ramp lay the outside stairs to the upper decks. Hurrying after, I rounded the corner and felt a small wave of confusion wash over me. The stern deck was completely deserted, with no sign of life in sight. That's honestly freaking impossible. 
I know that I saw somebody walk around the corner here. As I stared, debating whether to climb the steps or walk onto the port side of the lower walkway, a voice came from behind me, causing me to almost jump out of my skin. Adrian! I whirled around, my flashlight beam smacking right into the faces of my two friends. Zeke raised his hand to block the beam. Hey, lower your light, you're trying to blind us or something? He hissed. After a moment, I lowered it, looking intently at them. What? Darren finally asked as the silence morphed into an uncomfortable one. Did you two just dash around the entire outer section to get behind me or something? I asked. I saw the two exchange a look. Dude, what are you talking about? Darren asked. I was about to answer when Zeke interrupted me. Ah, there's the stairs that lead into the upper deck, he whispered and then without waiting for either of us to respond, I began climbing them. Come on, he called back down to us. After giving me a last look, Darren followed. Still feeling perplexed at how sure I had been in seeing somebody around the corner, and now wanting to be alone, I hurried up the creaking metal steps after them. The first door, which looked to lead to a once a snazzy lounge area, was locked and so we moved on. As we walked up to the starboard door to the bridge, I again looked around. The only sound that I could hear now, which had started as I climbed the steps, was the humming and banging coming from the lumber mill across the estuary. I heard the scream of a saw filter across the water, in the dark and on what I had to admit was already a slightly eerie vessel. I didn't like how it almost sounded like a woman screaming. Finally, we all stood in front of the door to the bridge. Darren looked at us. Well, here goes nothing. He said and then reached out and gripped the handle in one gloved hand. To our surprise, the door opened and after an exchange of looks, the three of us slipped inside and closed the door. I shone the flashlight around. The ship never got an update in her equipment, that's for sure. The door monitors that I could see looked to be at least from the mid to late 90s, if not earlier. Aside from them, what looked to be all our old gauges and levers remained, all covered in rust. A large wooden helm sat close up to the front windows, which looked out onto the bow of the ship and the darkness beyond. Darren stepped forward and pressed a few buttons on one of the monitors. Well, the ship has no power turned on, he reported. Oh, really, I wouldn't have guessed that. Thanks for the heads up. Sarah states the obvious a lot. Zeke said sarcastically. Hey, screw you, bro. I'm just trying to check things out. Darren hissed back. But I didn't hear what retort he received. My eyes were drawn to a rather large wooden table in the back corner of the bridge. Walking over to it, I saw in the flashlight's beam that old sailing charts littered the desktop, along with the red at closed book. Shooting a quick look around, I reached out and flipped it open, finding that it was the ship's log. As I heard the other two move around into the door connecting the bridge to the upper lounge area, I read, Many of the more recent logs came from the very early 2000s. Most just seemed to detail their final voyage from South America up here to the Pacific Northwest. Simply mundane notes. However, one entry from late October of 2002 caught my eye. 
October 23rd, 2002. Now, we've made it all the way from Panama, halfway up the California coast. The ship is running wild and the small handful of crew we've hired to bring her up to Portland tells me everything seems in working order. With luck, we'll reach Oregon by the first few weeks of November, barring one or two moorings to resupply and refuel. However, I must make mention of one thing. Manuel, the gentleman that I purchased the cam from, told me to keep an eye out and ear out for anything unusual. When he told me this, I wasn't sure of what he meant. Perhaps a broken prop amount or bearing that he refused to repair in the engine. However, as I've spent a lot of time on my own in areas of the ship, as my wife for some reason refuses to venture to certain rooms, now the woman as much as I love her is far too superstitious, and the stories we were told about the ship's well, colorful history sure didn't help. I've come to hear well, I'm probably just hearing things. Ships, especially ones as old as the cam, always creak and make strange sounds. And yet, what in the heck kind of machine sounds like a person whispering, or somebody walking about when no one is? I'm unsure of what to make of it, but decided to keep log of them in my private journal. Anyways, we should make it to Homeport safely. We'll log again soon. I raised an eyebrow, whispering, moving about. For a moment, the image of the person that I swore that I had seen flashed through my mind. A small chill ran on my spine and for a moment it almost felt like I was being watched. But I shook it away. Adrian, there are no such things as ghosts or anything. Get a grip, dude. I whispered. I looked up, seeing my friends had advanced into the upper lounge and shining their lights on the hideously outdated furniture. Before I joined them, I decided to flip the page and quickly see what the next log read. However, as I flipped the page, I saw only a blank page. Inspecting closer, I saw small torn edges of paper near the inner edge of the log. Huh, strange. Page has been torn out. For some reason, it gave me pause, but I shrugged it away and closed the logbook. Leaving it where it was, I moved from the bridge into the lounge. I had been right in my initial assessment. Whoever had owned the ship last had gotten rid of what today would still look like beautiful and timeless furniture from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and instead replaced it with those god-awful designs which had been the focal point of the 80s and 90s. I didn't want to keep looking at the tacky swirls and almost nauseating colors. And so I looked around, spying another staircase, this one leading down to the lower deck. Hey guys, come on, let's head down. I quickly checked my watch. The glow in the dark face showed that it was just after 9 at night. We're only going to stay another 15 minutes or so. I told myself and then led the way down the steps. The lower level looked as though somebody had retrofitted it into a dining room of some kind. It looked as though the previous owners had had the goal of turning the ship into a floating cruise ship or restaurant, and it looks like they went broke attempting to do so. Dude, this looks lame. I heard Darren mutter behind me. I looked at him. I mean, we always heard all the creepy stories about the ship over the years. All the stories about the messed up things that happened to Borders since her early days. All the tales about the drugs and experiments and murders and... 
we finally come aboard, what? We find out that it was nothing more than some rich lady's attempt to join the restaurant business. He kicked at a wooden booth. This blows, he suddenly yelled. This blows a blue whale. It blows so much. And with that, he leaned against the booth, his body seeming to sag from some unseen weight. I could tell that he had been filling his head with the idea of exploring the ship for a while, using it as a mental block to not think about his girlfriend leaving him. And now that he was confronted with the reality, it was all starting to crash down around him. I stepped forward and put a hand on his shoulder. You know the stories that we heard were far too good, or should I say bad, to be true, man. That's how urban legends start. Somebody takes something, blows away out of proportion, and after a long game of telephone, it barely has any resemblance to the truth. He looked up at me, his eyes, which earlier that night had been twinkling with excitement for the adventure, now simply seemed empty. Slowly, he nodded and then he sighed. Well, I think I'm about ready to get out of here. What about you? I let out a relieved sigh that I hadn't known I had been holding in. The truth was, as much as I knew it was just a ship, the whole abandoned angle, combined with the weird log entry, had made me feel a little uneasy. Yeah, I'm ready as well. I turned. Zeke, you ready to leave? I called, but I received no answer. Zeke, I repeated, my voice sounding somehow echoing and muted at the same time, as it bounced off of the degrading wood and furniture. I still got no response. Darren let out a slightly annoyed snort of air, his realization having soured his mood more than a bit. Where the heck did he get off to? He grumbled and then raised his voice a little. Hey Zeke, get your butt out of here or we're leaving you to swim home. I turned back to him. Shh, I hissed, even though I saw nobody through the windows on land, and it was likely our voices wouldn't be heard. I wasn't taking any chances, but still our friend didn't answer. I began to feel the uneasy feeling return in spades. The interior of the ship almost seemed as if, like a light bulb being flicked on, to have instantly taken on a new atmosphere from the simply abandoned one that it had held the entire time we had been aboard. Now, with the lack of response from our friend, it had taken on an almost palpable sense of foreboding. I shone my flashlight around, looking for anywhere possible that he could have gone to. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. I heard Darren groan. What? I whispered back and he pointed. Aiming the flashlight further into the room, I saw an open door which led to a metal staircase going down. Over the doorway, a plaque read, Engine Room and Lower Decks, Employees Only Beyond This Point. I let out a groan of my own. Oh, of course you would go down there. For a moment, I debated shouting down the stairwell for Zeke to go screw himself and then I shook my head. Like it or not, he was still my friend, and I wouldn't leave him. Yeah, come on, let's go get him and get the heck out of here. I said to Darren and led the way to the door. The steps, metal grated ones which had been painted in now fading white, led steeply down into the darkness, and I took them slowly, knowing with their age that they could give way at any moment. 
After a few nervous seconds, we stepped off of them into the bowels of the ship. Shining my flashlight around, I saw the corridor that it opened onto led in two directions, one towards the bow of the ship and another towards the stern, where the engine room had to be. My breathing came in slightly shallow. The area was giving off extremely eerie vibes. Darren sighed. Why does this feel like a scene from a horror movie, where the lead characters are forced to split up? He asked quietly. I gave him a nervous look and a chuckle. I wish you hadn't said that, I admitted. And then I reached into my coat pocket for the last two items that I had bought from the hardware store. Look, like it or not, if we want to get out of here quick, we're going to have to go and check out one area each to find Zeke. That doesn't mean I'm having us go unarmed, though. Here, take this. I held out the medium-sized object to my friend who took it, flipping it open after a second to reveal a sharp steel blade. He looked at it and then at me. What? You thought I was going to be stupid enough to come aboard this thing unarmed, especially with the homeless people we see come aboard? He nodded and then suddenly looked hard at me. Speaking of which, where exactly are they? Shouldn't we have run into at least one of them by now? Or is some sign of their having been here? That question slammed into me like a truck. I hadn't thought about it, but he was right. The entire time aboard, we hadn't seen a blanket, wrappers, or anything that would signal homeless people had been on board recently. The realization made the unsettling feeling beginning to bubble up in my gut increase, and I shook my head. I pointed towards the stern. Look, let's just find Zeke and get out of here. You quickly go and check the engine room, and I'm going to check the bow section, okay? We meet back here in five minutes regardless. After a moment's hesitation, he nodded, and then he turned away and moved toward the corridor. I took a deep breath and then turned and moved in the opposite direction. The corridor was tight and narrow, almost making me feel claustrophobic. My hand gripped the pocket knife tightly as my footsteps echoed off of the metal grating. At the end of the corridor, I saw three or four doors. The first two were locked when I tried them, the handles only slightly jiggling. The third wouldn't even jiggle. It was jammed up tight. The final door opened, the hinges giving off a loud creak which echoed down the corridor, almost a little too loudly. I entered the room, shining my light around. I had entered into some sort of cargo area. I could see crates stacked up against one wall, their wooden sides warped and rotted by moisture. Against a far wall was another desk, though this one much smaller and less grand than the one on the bridge, much older as well. It almost looked as it to be as old as the ship itself. I crossed to it, stopping as I thought that I heard a creak behind me. Every muscle in my body tensed up and my grip on my knife grew slightly sweaty. I took a deep breath, feeling again as though I were being watched and I finally spun around. No one was behind me. Everything aside from me was completely still and all I could hear was the gentle lapping of waves against the hall outside. Giving a last, wary look to the gloomy corners of the room, I turned back to the small desk. Immediately, I saw a few things which just seemed off to me. 
The first was that strange symbols appeared to have been carved into the desk, ones that I had never seen before. Looking at them almost made my head feel dizzy and so I focused away from them. The second thing which seemed to be off was a large chef's knife had been slammed into the wood. I reached out and attempted to pull it free but it refused to budge, as if it had been fused with the desk over the decades. The third were the only two other objects on the table. Two pieces of paper lay on the desk. The first looked extremely yellow with age as if it were at least 60 or 70 years old. The second, to my surprise, looked like a page from the ship's logbook upstairs. I saw the tear marks along the left-hand side of it. The torn-out page. I shot another look around, knowing that I should immediately get back to Darren. I didn't want to leave the guy alone in here as much as I didn't want to be on my own any longer. And yet something compelled me to lean down and pick up the two sheets of paper. I angled my flashlight down and began to read. First the torn out page log and then the yellow page. As I read the log, I felt my pulse, which was already a little off, begin to rapidly speed up. My heart began to beat wildly in my chest and I felt my mouth turn dry as cotton. Even though I never believed in any supernatural stuff, the words written on both pages filled me with an ever-increasing sense of horror and dread, the likes of which I had never felt before. Oh my god, I whispered as I finished the last sentence. That was when I heard it. It came from farther forward in the storage room, close to where the V of the bow met. I felt all the blood drain out of my face and my eyes go wide, my breathing almost hitching at my chest. Every part of me wanted to scream at myself that I couldn't possibly be hearing what I was. Even now, I still can't help but tell myself that, and yet, I know what I heard. I heard a whisper. It was unintelligible, too soft and low to make out individual words, but it was without a doubt whispering. It sounded like the speaker was whispering extremely fast and under his breath. Dropping the papers, I slowly aimed my flashlight towards the bow, the beam shaking slightly in my grasp. For a moment, I couldn't understand what I was seeing. The beam almost seemed to reflect off and extremely well. The only word that I can use would be dense shadows, one which the light couldn't shoo away. And then the darkness began to spill out of its hidey hole, sliding towards me and engulfing everything it touched. Terror coursed through every fiber of my being as I watched it slowly consume the crates, moving towards me. The sight of it beginning to creep over the papers that I had dropped freed me from the trance-like state that I had fallen into, and I turned and bolted from the room, leaping over the metal divider that the hatch had been set into. Darren! I screamed as I sprinted down the corridor, my voice and footfalls smacking off the metal corridor like gunshots. Darren, we need to get the heck out of here. As I approached the door leading to the stairs back up, I suddenly heard my friend scream from further down the corridor. Adrian, help me. I shot a glance back, seeing the almost living darkness begin to seep out of the room that I had come from. Making my decision, I sprinted down the corridor to the engine room. Darren, where are you? I screamed. In here, I'm trapped. Came his voice from just inside the hatch. 
I ducked my head and leapt through the hatch into the compartment. Huge, hulking diesel engines rose up on either side of me, but I didn't pay much attention to the details. I saw Darren sitting on his butt in the middle of the room. His foot had fallen through the metal grating, and he was attempting to free himself from the small hole that it had caused. In seconds, I was by his side. I'll help you. I cried and then knelt down beginning to pull at his leg. It gave leeway, slowly beginning to pull out. We need to get out of here right now. I shouted as I saw his ankle emerge, but then I felt his leg go tense. I froze. It almost felt like all sound and air had been sucked out of the engine room. The silence was unearthly, and it almost seemed to be filled with a sense of malice. And then I saw Darren lift his light and aim it behind me. Zeke? He asked softly. Another huge shiver shot down my spine and I slowly turned to look. Sure enough, Zeke stood at the other end of the engine room. He had his back to us, standing half in and half out of the shadows. I aimed my own light at him. As I passed over him, he almost seemed to wince at it. Zeke? I called out after a moment. I was about to call again when the sound made me freeze up, and I know that Darren had heard it as well, because I saw his face go pale as mine must have. And the whisper that I had heard was back, and it was not alone. I couldn't tell how many there were, but it almost seemed like an entire group of people were rapidly whispering. Just like before, I couldn't tell what they were saying, but the sound made all the hair on my arms and legs stand up straight. And then my heart almost stopped as I saw shadows step out of the gloom around our friend. And I don't mean people draped in shadow. I mean literal shadows. Shaped into the rough outline of people stepped from the dark. I saw them poking their heads out from behind machinery, from crawl spaces that a human couldn't possibly fit. From everywhere. There almost looked to be a dozen or so figures standing there just out of the range of our flashlight's beam. And now I could tell the whispering was coming from them. And keeping an eye on them, I reached down and began fumbling to free Darren's ankle again. I had just about gotten it free when a new sound began, and this one did make my heart stop. Zeke had begun whispering to himself. I couldn't tell what he was saying at first as he was facing away, but it was in an almost identical manner to the shadows, low and fast. I leaned forward slightly as I finally felt Darren's foot pull loose, and to this day I wish that it hadn't, because I finally understood what our friend was whispering. Oh, we'll never leave, we'll never leave, we'll never leave, we'll never leave. The same three words he kept repeating over and over, almost like a mantra. And I realized with a growing sense of horror that all the shadows were whispering the same words. I almost wanted to clap my hands over my ears to block out the almost maddening sound. And then it all stopped. Like somebody had flicked off a television, the whispers and midway through their horrible mantra had ceased. The silence returned. A more horrific and deadly silence than I had ever heard. The shadows didn't melt away, they stayed, staring at us in the unearthly stillness. And then Zeke spoke clearly in a voice that for some reason sounded just off. We'll never leave. He said silently and quietly and then turned to finally face us. I clapped a hand over my mouth to keep from screaming. 
My friend's normally bright green eyes were gone, and in their place, sheer blackness. It was as if a squid had squirted its ink into them, turning them completely black, irises and all. Equally as horrible was the grin which was plastered over his face. It wasn't one that I had ever seen a human being give. If you've ever seen that crappy horror film from a few years ago, Truth or Dare, the smile the being possessing the main characters gave its victims, that was the smile that he had on his face. And then he spoke again with that voice that sounded wrong, as if it weren't just him speaking but someone or something else. And the four words that he spoke did practically cause my heart to stop. And you'll never leave. As the last word left his lips, the shadows which had stayed where they were this entire time began to move forward, towards us. I shot a terrified look at Darren who was stumbling to his feet. He had an identical look of horror on his face. We locked eyes as the shadows began to move towards us quickly. And then we were dashing out of the engine room. The whispering returned almost deafeningly loud as we ran. It was joined by two more sounds, mine and Darren's screams. Behind us, I could feel the shadows pursuing us. They hadn't expected us to move so fast, and by the tone of the whispers, I could tell that they were mad about it. The two of us crashed into the stairwell, bolting up it. In the chaos, I dropped my flashlight and heard it bounce back down the stairs behind me. But I didn't stop to look, nor did I want to look back. God only knows what I might have seen if I had. We burst into the restaurant area, running for the closest door. For a moment, I was terrified that, like what happened before, a character's death in a horror movie, the door would be jammed. But after a few terrified seconds of fumbling with the lock, the door flew open, letting in the sea spray from outside. Forget the boat, just jump. I shouted at Darren, feeling the shadows still behind us. Almost as one, we both took two running jumps. My right foot landed on top of the railing and I pushed off. For a moment, the dark world swirled around me, and then the freezing cold water enveloped me. For a few seconds, I feared that I would drown in the darkness, but then my head broke the surface. Sputtering out salt water, I immediately began swimming for the boat ramp, hearing the splashes of Darren beside me. After a few seconds, we reached the ramp pulling ourselves onto the concrete and coughing, and after a minute, from Darren, sobbing. That horrific night was two weeks ago. Neither of us knew what we could possibly tell the police without seeming insane, and we couldn't explain what we were doing aboard without getting in trouble, and so both of us just went home. Zeke's parents called the police to report their missing son a day or so later, they found the boat still tied up to the cam. They searched throughout the ship. I heard they found the flashlight that I dropped, the bulb broken, but they found no trace of Zeke. I knew they wouldn't. I felt consumed with guilt for my friend's disappearance. I had the chance to tell them no when they asked about sneaking on board and I didn't. No amount of booze can chase that fact away. I keep my kitchen blinds tightly shut now. I'm too terrified to look out of it. Too terrified that I'll see those shadows staring at me from the windows of the cam. And I haven't had a decent night of sleep since then. I keep having reoccurring nightmares. 
horrible nightmares of those shadows coming for us. Nightmares of my friend or whatever he had become. Telling me in that horrible voice that we would never leave. Before melting away to become a shadow himself. Nightmares of running down an endless maze of metal corridors. And the whispering always following just behind me. But almost worse than that, I dream of those two papers that I found in the storage room. The yellow paper telling in detail, which I don't dare describe, all the evil, depraved acts that the second-to-last owners did aboard her. Acts which dealt with the occult, dealing with human sacrifice and more, and turning the ship itself into a sort of a conduit. For what, I don't know, but from what I saw, a conduit or doorway for things which are insatiable and beyond evil. And the final brief log entry of the cams, a previous owner. November 14th, 2002. I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. I found that, that horrific paper wedged in the back of the old desk down below, talking about truly evil things which Manuel and the others did in this ship over the decades since they bought it. All the death, occultism, and worse that they performed. All in the name of creating some sort of doorway to somewhere else. The only word I can use to describe it is Hades itself. I was afraid when the first member of my crew went missing that they simply fell overboard or drowned. But when more and more simply vanished, how could I have known? How could I have known what had been done when I bought this ship? Something that I wanted to change our lives for the better. My wife and I are the last two left. We hear the whispers filtering up from down below every day and night. They drive us to the brink of insanity. And even worse, I've seen the shadows. The figures which watch us from every dark corner of the ship. My wife is not, and I'm thankful for that. I'm not even sure if we'll ever see shore again. I feel they have a similar fate in store for us as the rest of my crew. But we have a plan. We're aiming for the nearest part and as soon as we dock we're getting off. And I'm just letting the ship sit and rust away. No matter how much it costs to more, let it sit and decay until it sinks. I'm not even sure if the evil which lives in the hall will go then. But I don't know what else to do. And to anyone who may read this log, anyone from the Coast Guard or anything for that matter, if we don't make it back and you find this while searching for us, please, for the love of God, heed my warning. Get off this ship while you still can. And as always, stay creepy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.